himself to us. Now, this is not, uh, there's more reasons, but these are some of the reasons I think that God might have written so much in narrative. First of all, these are events that actually happened. They're not myths. They're not fairy tales. They are real events with real people. You will notice that the people in these stories are flawed and sinful. Sometimes even scandalously so. We read the story and we think, wow, that's, that's pretty bad. <laughs> I can't imagine someone I know doing that who's a Christian. Sometimes we wonder how God could even use such people. But this leads to the second reason, I believe. Second, God is in the business of working in his world with his creation, mankind. That is a messy work. Not because God is messy, but because we are messy. People are not simple and straightforward. And God's work of transformation is long and sometimes arduous. It's work for, on our part. Not for God, you know, it's not hard for him. But it's a process. God tells stories of men and women because he is working in the lives of men and women. And every single one of us has our own life story. You today have your life story. We honor the Lord and we learn from Bible stories when we find our story, we find its place within God's story. Other simple facts. Why do we like books and movies and you know, programs like this, entertainment? Because we find stories incredibly interesting as human beings. We connect with them on an emotional level. And we all, most of the time, what, when do we find a, a book or a movie that connects with us the most? It's when we can find a little bit of ourselves in that story. We say, wow, that part, man, that reminds me of something I know in my life. You know, the same thing is true for the Bible, except these are not just stories human, humans made up. These are God-inspired stories. And we're going to look at the story of Jacob today. Now, Honestly, when I think of the story of Jacob, I don't, didn't always know what to do with it. We're like, Abraham, oh yeah, I know Abraham's stories, you know, that's great. Isaac, he actually doesn't have that much in the Bible, surprisingly. It's kind of less than you would think. And then we get to Jacob, and maybe, we know, maybe you know a few stories. You're like, oh yeah, Jacob, you know, he stole his birthright from his brother, you know, he tricked his father. Uh, he wrestled with that angel one time. And you're like, okay, uh, he had a lot of wives. Uh, his kids didn't get along. Okay, what does Jacob's story mean to you today? Uh, I I don't know. Honestly, so I, even I at times was like, I'm not sure. Well, let's try. I'm, I'm going to attempt to, to pull out and uncover what is the overall theme of Jacob's story. And this is the sermon title, Grappling for God's Promise. God's promise comes. Does it come by faith or by the flesh? Let's look. Genesis 25. Jacob's life Really, I broke down to three sections, and there are three times that God speaks, primarily. Three appearances of the Lord in Jacob's story that give us the high points of his life. Well, starting off with the story, the background, you can imagine Isaac is the son of Abraham. Abraham is the descendant of Noah through Shem, and Noah is the descendant of Adam and Eve through Seth. And you can think of Genesis as almost stacking promises throughout the whole story. What happens after Adam and Eve sin? God gives them a promise. You will have a descendant whose heel will be bruised, but he will crush the head of the serpent. And then when Cain comes along, oh, it's not through him. Abel, sadly, not through him, comes through Seth. You go down further. You get to Noah. Okay, things are going poorly. How is God going to fulfill this promise if he kills everyone on earth? Well, guess what? He saves Noah. He makes a covenant with Noah saying, I will bless you. Your descendants will spread throughout the whole earth. And that promise even goes specifically to Shem, his son. And eventually you get from Shem all the way down to Abraham, which God appears again and gives him a promise. I will bless you. Your descendants will be as the dust of the earth, as the stars of the sky. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Oh, wait, it's not through Ishmael, though. <laughs> not Ishmael, it's through Isaac. And God makes promises with Isaac. And this is where we are in our story. Isaac, much like his father Abraham, had difficult producing an heir to this promise. Remember that God had promised Abraham that his, through Isaac, his descendants will become a great nation and bless all the whole world. 
And just like with Abraham and Sarai, this promise seems in jeopardy because Rebecca is barren. You can look. Verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, the Syrian, Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. How is God going to fulfill this promise if they can't have kids? It's almost like a recurring theme almost. God's like, hey, I'm going to give you the descendants that'll rule the whole world. And Abraham's like, but I, I, I'm like uh, 90 years old. I don't have any kids. We'll try this. We'll try that. No, 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 no. God will produce a child for you. And here you go, Isaac, all over again. Isaac and Rebecca. God is supposed to bring our descendants throughout the whole world to bless the whole world, to rule the whole world. And but we can't have kids. But he pleads with the Lord. For any of you who have similarly sought to have children and been unable to, you can imagine and feel the deep pain and sorrow that comes with this barrenness. Another evidence that this is real life. These are real people. Some of you know intimately what that feels like. But God, but Isaac pleads with God for a child. God hears and answers, and not only with one son, but with two. Verse 22, but the children struggled together within her. The idea here is literally like they're smashing together. Like this is violent action here. So much so that Rebecca is seriously concerned for her children's safety and for her own children and for her own safety. And so she said, if all is well, why am I like this? God's doing this. Then why is it so going so poorly? Is God's promise nothing? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, God speaks. First, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. One of them's going to be the, the chief. The other one's going to be the servant. And if we lived in that world, we'd say, oh, wow, the older is going to be the chief. Okay, yeah, because that's normal. The oldest, the firstborn is always the one who gets the blessing, who's the strongest, who's, the, who's the, the, the demonstration of his father's strength. Oh, no, no. The older shall serve the younger. One commentator wrote that this God of, this traditional God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is actually very kind of anti-tradition. <laughs> what happened with Ishmael and Isaac? Oh, yeah, the younger served, the older served the younger. Here we go again. The older served the younger. God gives this promise. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they named his name Esau. Literally, it's like, wow, this kid is hairy. And what does Esau mean? Hairy. So it's like, it's like the, he came out and they said, wow, that kid's got a lot of hair. So you know what? Harry's a good name for him. That's what they did. Descriptive. But right away, afterward, his brother came out took, taking hold of Esau's heel. Okay, the first one came out. He's Harry. Second one comes out holding the heel. So what do they call him? Jacob, literally the heel grabber. One who comes on the heels. Now, I don't know if this was negative at the time, but it comes to mean something negative. The deceiver, the supplanter, the one who's tripping up, right? It's almost like someone's nipping at the heels and always ready to trip you up and take your place. That's Jacob. And Esau, Isaac was 60 years old when, when she bore them. It's been 20 years since they got married. They've been waiting a while. And then right away, okay, so here's the promise of God. Here's another promise, another, another prophecy. Jacob the younger will be the chief. Esau will serve Jacob. Okay, so that's the setup. And right away, we jump into the story. There's no waiting. Verse 27, so the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man. Now, sometimes people use this to say, oh, look at Jacob, he's kind of a wuss. No, no, he just, mild really there means complete. He was put together. Esau is kind of wild, kind of lives out in the field kind of a little bit of a crazy man, you know? Jacob is the one who's put together, who's refined, who takes care of things at home. And Isaac loved Esau 
because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We have seen God's promise here. And right away, we see cracks in the family. Isaac and Rebekah, not on the same page. In fact, they have differing loves for differing children. I'm sure Rebekah and Isaac praise the Lord for a healthy and safe birth. All is well, or maybe not. Right away, the author lets us know that family peace was not present. For just as Jacob and Esau were vastly different, so also the affections of their parents were different. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Perhaps Esau reminded Isaac of himself. We don't really know that much about Isaac. It's very possible. You know, I think every father is proud when his son kind of follows in his footsteps. You know, if you're like, I, I'm, I like sports. And then when your son, you know, I, I do like sports, actually. And you know what? My son likes to watch sports with me. It makes me kind of feel proud. Like, yeah. You know, I can imagine if I had another son who's like, nope, don't care about that. I'd be like, are they a little disappointed? You know, it's kind of a parental nature. Isaac loved Esau, but perhaps Rebecca harbored great expectations for Jacob. What did she hear? She heard God tell her, Jacob is the one who's going to have prominence. And so maybe there's part of her, their whole life, that she's thinking about that. Jacob's the one. He's, you know, great expectations. Jacob's the one who's, who's going to go places. Esau, I don't know about him. Regardless, you will see throughout the Old Testament, especially in these stories, Parental and family favoritism will always lead to heartache within a family. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself. So we saw, we see Jacob, the first part of his life, leaning on himself. Leaning on himself. This is the two stories, 25, 29 through 34, and 27 and 28. First of all, we see that Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. Right away, they're adults. Look at verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew. Okay, there's no, you know, there's no kid time. It's just right away, we're on to the adulthood. They've, they've grown up. They have this separation. They have their parental favoritism. And Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Esau's like, I'm going to die if I don't get some food. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. The red stew, he was red when he was born. That's where Edom comes from. And what does Jacob say? Um, good old thinking, deceitful Jacob. Hey, sell me your birthright as of this day. This was not a random decision by Jacob. You can almost imagine. He's been thinking about this a long time. Because what was the promise? Hey, God promised that Jacob is going to have prominence. But you know what? It's not really working out so far. <laughs> Isaac loves Esau. The birthright, the double portion of the blessing. It's almost like the family, uh, the person who's going to be in charge of the inheritance. The, 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 I can't think of the word, the estate manager. That's the birthright. Esau is the older one, and he has right to it because of tradition, despite God's word. Esau is going to be in charge of the family. He's going to get the double portion. He's going to decide what Jacob gets. And Jacob, you can almost imagine him his whole life thinking, this is not right. This is not what God said. So we got to take care of this. Esau, though, what does he do? He says, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? And you can think through the story of Genesis. What is this birthright? It's a pretty big deal. This is the birthright that Isaac received instead of Ishmael. This is the promise of God's blessing and the blessing that one day this is through whom the Messiah will come. And does Esau care? Not at all. Esau says, sure, I will sell it to you for a simple bowl of stew. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went on his way. Esau's like, doesn't even think twice about it. He just eats it and says, good trade. I got one meal out of it. Off he goes. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Esau is a man who cares more for his hunger today than any promise from the Lord. He's called a profane man in other parts of scripture. He was not a man of faith. He didn't care for Abraham's promise. He didn't care for Isaac's promise. He, is a, cared, he cared nothing for the God of his parents, for the things of faith. He cared only for his earthly desires. You know, Jacob's not that much better though. <laughs> Jacob here, the irony, the irony of the text here is that Jacob is called a complete 
whole man. That's what mild means. He's complete. He's put together. He's got it together, almost like blameless. Yet he is willing to entice his brother to sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. You can almost imagine Jacob saying, God helps those who help themselves. God promised this to me. All I'm doing is claiming that promise. And Esau, you can imagine Jacob, Esau doesn't even care about this. He doesn't care what's it going to hurt him. And it was promised to Jacob anyways. You know, what's wrong with trading fair and square? I value the birthright. Esau values a bowl of stew. Yet, is that the way to treat your brother? Sure, it's justified in a way. He didn't lie. But did he take advantage of Esau? He definitely did. Jacob acts from a belief in God's promise, but he also acts in a way that he feels he must fulfill God's promise. He is seeking God's blessing. Okay, Esau doesn't care about God's blessing. Jacob does, but he's willing to pursue that blessing and promise in an unloving, manipulative way. Esau's actions demonstrate his complete lack of belief in God. He disdained the tremendous blessing of God. Jacob leans, though, on his own scheming to fulfill God's promise. Like I said, it's like the mantra of Jacob. God helps those who help themselves. God promised, so I'm going to make it happen. <sighs> Jacob, right away, leaning on his own abilities, his own scheming, his own deception, his own self. I do have up there, you can know, just as a little bit aside, birthright is the word bekorah in Hebrew. Probably saying them wrong. And blessing, Baraka. So you can almost imagine, there are two stories, and the author's like, hey, we're just making a word pun here. We got the Bakora and we got the Baraka. Jacob's taken both. Between this, we see Jacob leaning on himself. Okay, second story. We're going to go over 26 and 26. It's a story about Isaac. I don't have time to go into that. But basically, what do you want to take away from it? God blesses Isaac more in that chapter 26. God blesses Isaac. He continues to grow. Okay? Next story. Rebecca and Jacob scheme to steal the blessing. So time passes, and soon Isaac starts to feel the advances of old age. He's gone blind, and for some reason, maybe he was sick, or maybe he was kind of just feeling kind of morbid. He says, I think I'm going to die soon. Look at chapter 27. Now, it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim. He's going blind that he could not see, that he called Esau his older son and said, my son. Verse two, then he said, behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, go out to the field and hunt game for me and make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Jacob, he got the birthright, but once again, God's promise seems to be in danger. Despite Esau's disdain for his birthright, Esau didn't care. Esau had married um, some Canaanite women, some pagan women, which were, uh, it says in chapter 26, that hurt his parents. He doesn't care about these spiritual things. Yet, despite that, Isaac is set on blessing Esau. This is going to happen because this is the son that I love. I don't care what God has said. I don't care what who demonstrates true spiritual affections, Isaac says Esau's going to get it because I love him. And you can imagine, again, easily imagine Rebecca and Jacob thoughts on the matter. You know, Rebecca hears this. And can you imagine her thinking, this isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't what God said. This isn't God's will, which it wasn't. So what does Rebecca do? Uh, I got to fix this situation. She comes to fix the situation. We see a glimpse of where Jacob might have got his scheming ability from. Because what does Rebecca say in verse five? Now, Rebecca was listening and Esau, and when she went, when he went to hunt game, Rebecca spoke to her son, Jacob. Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau and say, go get food, bring it to me that I may bless you. Verse eight, now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me their two choice of kids of goats and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you can get the blessing instead of Esau. And Jacob is like, I don't know about this. Jacob said to his mother, look, Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth skinned man. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps dad's going to want to feel me and he's going to know right away. That's not Esau. Esau's like, he's furry, man. He's got hair all over. Ever since he was a baby, Jacob's like, that's not me. Okay. 
and I will get a curse instead of a blessing. And what does his mom say? Let the curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and get them for me. Rebecca convinces her own son to deceive her husband because she believes that we need to fix the situation because God is obviously not working here to fulfill his promise. So Jacob goes, he gets it. And uh, what do they do? They cook it up. And then also like, okay, Jacob, you're really too smooth. So that actually is a problem. So we got to get some goat fur, put it on you. That way, Isaac won't know that it's not Esau. Okay, so they're working here. You, and you can uh, see, there is a, it's kind of an absurd truth here. The mother, Rebecca and Jacob, they believe that God would not be able to accomplish his own purpose without their help. Mother and son believe that they were doing and helping God and his promise. Therefore, their deceit was justified. They believe that unrighteous acts were appropriate and good if they aided the righteous works of God. You know, the ends justify the means is, is not a new philosophy. That's Rebecca and Jacob. Hey, God said it. That's all we're doing. We're just, we're just pursuing God's will here. But what does it mean? It forces Jacob to lie multiple times to his father. So he goes in to his father. In verse uh, 18, he says, my father. And, he's, and Isaac said, and Jacob said, here am I. Or so Isaac said, here am I. Verse 18, who are you? my son. First lie. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat my game that your soul may bless me. Lie number one. But Isaac's like not so sure about this. He says to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly? It's like, that was fast. I I know you're a good hunter, but like, man, you were gone not that long. Where did this get? And Jacob's second lie. How is it that you found it so quickly? Jacob says, because the Lord, your God, brought it to me. Jacob is not only lying, but he's blaspheming God in an attempt to help fulfill God's will. And Isaac still is not so sure. So he says, please come near me that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. You can tell Isaac's like not too sure about this. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and, and Isaac felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice. But the hands are the hands of Esau. Now, I just find it humorous because, like, literally it's goat fur. But what does Isaac say? Mm, that's definitely Esau right there. I mean, you got to imagine, like, Esau's so hairy, he literally feels like a goat because Isaac's like, I mean, I wouldn't believe this, but that's definitely Isaac. That goat fur, that's definitely Isaac. So he did not recognize him, and his hands were hairy like his brother's. And then he said, still, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob says his third lie, I am. He said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game that my soul may bless you. So he brought it to him and he ate it and he smelled. And here is the blessing of Isaac to Esau. And he came near and kissed him and smelled the breath of his clothing and blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren. Remember what God had said? Who's going to serve who? Jacob will be served by Esau. But what is Isaac seeking to do? Oh, Esau is going to be master and served by your brothers, Jacob. And let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Now, if you've read your Bible in Genesis, this should sound somewhat familiar. Because, let's compare. Top is Isaac's blessing. The bottom is God's blessing to Abraham. And notice some similarities. Isaac says to Esau, and the nations bow down to you. What does God tell Abraham? I will make you a great nation. What does Isaac tell Esau? Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. And what did God tell Abraham? I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. Now, this is not to excuse Isaac. What is he seeking to do? He's seeking to take God's blessing and promise to Abraham, through Isaac, to Esau. But who is truly the, 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 the son of promise? Jacob. So you, Isaac is, is really trying to do something quite bad here. Quite wrong. Jacob sought to, or so, um, this sort of blessing to us, is, to us is kind of, uh, weird. 
you might be sitting here thinking, okay, how does this blessing work? Is it like a magic incantation? You know, this is not really something we do today because how could you cheat it? Like if it's from God, how does Jacob get the blessing by accident? Like, how does that work? And I would just say this, I don't, it's a longer discussion. Jacob sought to fulfill God's promise by taking advantage of him. Uh, this blessing is, again, somewhat confusing, but it's true in all of these cases with Abraham and Isaac, and then eventually when Jacob blesses Joseph's children and his own children, uh, these all stand correct in the long run, fulfilled as true prophecy. It is prophetic, it seems, from the Lord. It is certainly not something that is still happening today. There are some, uh, uh, I'd say, denominations loosely and cults who still act as if this blessing from the patriarchs is still operative, that you could use it. That's not the case. I think really the best way to understand this is these blessings were God's way of speaking prophecy and his words in a time before written scripture. There's no Bible. So in some way, God is using this to speak, to accomplish his will. It's a special means of communication from gracious God. Anyways, Isaac pronounces them this blessing on Jacob. And it mirrors the blessing of God to Abraham. Isaac attempts to pass that Abrahamic promise to Esau against God's promise, against God's revealed will. And yet by God's grace, Jacob once again usurps Esau's place. And immediately, it seems, Esau returns from his hunt. He brings in his food to Isaac, ready to receive his blessing. Yet it's too late. Esau comes, right? And he says, here I am, father. I am here to get my blessing. And Isaac responds, who are you? Who is this at my door? Look at verse 32 of 27, chapter 27, 32. And Isaac, his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled exceedingly. He's trembling with trembles. The idiom in the original language. He is overcome by this fear of the realization that he blessed, not Esau. And then when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And what does Esau say? Is he not rightly called Jacob? Supplanter? Because he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright and now he has taken away my blessing. Isaac does bless Esau, but it's not a great blessing. He can't take it back. It's a vow before the Lord that is not revocable. So Jacob, fulfilling God's promise? Sort of. But how's he doing it? By his own efforts. By earthly, fleshly means and motivations. Through deceit. Through manipulation. And what does it result in? Look at verse 40. 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. And when, basically, when he's dead, then I will kill my brother Jacob. You might kind of read the story, you're like, well, who's the good guy here? Not really anyone. There's no good guys. Now, I hope you're not Esau, but also I hope we're not Jacob. Because Jacob is not seeking God's promise through faith but through the flesh. That's something we must take away from this story. We must see God's promise through faith. Not just the correct ends, but the correct means. We must trust God with how we receive his blessings as much as what blessings we, were, we will receive. Because Jacob is not doing that. So what happens with Jacob? Well, Esau is going to kill him. So what is Rebecca afraid of losing her favorite son? She says, leave. You got to get out of here or else you'll be killed. And Rebecca says, go to my, my brother, Laban. He lives back in Haran. This is or, or, uh, Paddan Aram. This is where Jake, Abraham's family came from. You know, they, remember when Abraham was called out and he left to come to land of Canaan? He sa she says, go back there. That's where my family is. Be there, she says, a few days. Well, it will turn into 20 years because of Jacob's actions. So he leaves with nothing. 
Things have gone great and awfully. Jacob has succeeded in usurping his brother. He's claimed the promises of God. He's got the birthright. He's got the blessing, but at great price. He's caused hatred and strife within his family. He's been separated from everything he has known. He's sent out in the desert to make this long journey with nothing. Jacob's manipulative pursuits of God have resulted in equal parts success and brokenness. You know, and this doesn't seem like a man who deserved God's grace, yet that is what grace is. It's grace to those who are broken, who are sinful, who are failing. So what happens next in our story? God graciously speaks once again. Verse 10 of 20, chapter 28. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there at night, and he put down to sleep on a stone, and then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to the heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. Remember that. I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And what is the next section of Jacob's life? It's learning through suffering. Jacob awoke and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. Bethel. This place becomes Bethel, the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Once again, God appears and gives promises to those who have been humbled. Jacob did great. He succeeded in his schemes, but what did he leave with? Nothing. He's running for his life from his own brother with no wealth, no family. He's out in the middle of nowhere, sleeping on a rock. That's all he's got. And this is when God appears to him. God renews the promise to Jacob's fathers and to Jacob personally, right? What do we see? This is a repeat of Abraham's promise and Isaac's promise. Blessing, descendants, and a permanent land. And the promise of a seed through which all the world will be blessed. Does it seem like that's pretty likely right now? What, what's going to happen if Jacob tries to come back to this land? Esau's like, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to kill you. Does, it, does, I, does Jacob have anything? Any family? Any descendants? Any wealth? Nothing. But this is when God promises these things. It is the layer of, on layer of God's promise. Jacob is not a hero in this story. He's simply a recipient of God's grace. God, again, promises, I will bring you back safely to this land, and I will bless you and give you great descendants. And, you know, to, to give away a little bit of the story, Jacob does come back with a huge family. I mean, we know, like the story of Joseph, how many kids does he have? A lot. Wealth? Yes. And safety? Eventually, yes. If we believe God's promise and follow him, we always end with more than, than we began. Now, in our case, it's not always physical blessings, but we always end more than we began with God. We also see the beginning of the transformation of Jacob from a man of manipulation and deception to a man of faith. Notice what he says in verse 20 of 28. If God, if, now, Jacob, I like Jacob. He's like, I'm going to start believing, but I still got some, some, some holdouts here. If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord will be my God. And the stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And all of that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now, I don't want to discount Jacob's faith. This is a step in belief. But it's, it's, it's a work in progress, okay? Jacob's like, hey, God, wow, this is amazing, this promise. I, I'll believe you, but first, I got to make sure that you're good for your word. One commentator noted, noted, this is almost backwards from compared to Abraham. For God tested Abraham first. 
by telling him to go out to a land that he didn't know. But what does Jacob do here first? He's like, God, I got to test you first to make sure I can trust you. This is behavior of by Jacob is probably what we expect. God's gracious, promises, giving to him everything to unworthy Jacob. But Jacob is still like, okay, God, I know, but still I got I to gotta test it out here, okay? Let me do my thing first. But this is the beginning. God, Jacob's transformation begins with experiencing God face to face and the reception of God's gracious promise. So learning through suffering. I do love the next story, chapter 29. I love this because Jacob gets a promise. And what's one of the promises? Your descendants will be as dust of the earth. It'll be all over the world. And we come to 29 and Jacob comes to to the the land he's seeking. And uh, what's the first thing he finds? He says, he comes to the well, he meets these shepherds and he says, "Where, where is this? And they say, Haran. And he says, oh, hey, that's what I'm looking for. He says, do you know Laban? the son of Nahor, the Laban is Rebecca's brother, his mom's brother, his uncle. Do you know Laban? And they say, oh yeah, we know Laban. We really know Laban. And I, I can imagine as we get to know Laban a little bit, I can imagine the shepherds being like, yeah, oh yeah. I know Laban for sure. <laughs> yeah, I definitely know that guy. And what do they say? They say, hey, look, he is well. And oh, look, here comes his daughter, Rachel, right now. Imagine that. And then he says, look, this time is still high. It is not time for cattle to be gathered together. Look, people don't come to feed them. And he's like, well, Rachel's coming anyways right now. And she came with her father's sheep and she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. He's like, I got to. Yeah, I don't know if any of you grew up in youth group when you had like the folding chairs you got to put away. And you're like, oh man, as like a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, you're like, oh man, if I could pick up like five chairs in each arm, the girls would probably be super impressed. But that's Jacob. He's like, oh, Rachel's here? Man, let me roll away this stone right now from this well, okay? Let me show you how, how cool and strong I am. And uh, Jacob does this. And when Rachel comes up, then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. It's love at first sight. It's got to start, right? I mean, if you're going to have descendants all over the world, like you got to find a woman first. So Jacob finds the one he's been looking for, Rachel. And it really is sincere affection and love here. God is blessing him. God says, look, you know, look, I gave you these promises. Here's the wife you've been looking for. And it seems later on in the story that Rachel reciprocates. Rachel loves Jacob just as much as Jacob loves her. And so they go on. Uh, this actually mirrors the story of Isaac finding a wife or Abraham's servant finding a wife from Isaac. God is certainly at work, um, except there's only one problem. Jacob's about to run into someone who's even more deceptive than he is. So he comes to Laban and he says, Laban, uncle, I've been looking for you. I'm here to live with you for a while. And wow, your daughter is great. I love her. Like, can, can we date? Can we, can we get engaged? Can we do something? And Laban's like, oh, sure, Jacob, yes. Of course, I'd love to have you as part of my family, but can you just work seven years first? Like, I mean, you got nothing. You got no wealth. You're not bringing me anything. Can you, can you just, just work with me here? Like seven years, not that bad, right? And Jacob, it literally says, because of Jacob's love for Rachel, it seemed like a few days. He's like, ah, of course, Jacob's motivated. He's like, yes, I will do that for you. He's supremely motivated. He agrees to seven years. And for seven years, it feels like a day, such a romantic story. I just can't wait for the good, happy ending of this story. Oh man, he's like going to work hard for her. They're going to get, they're going to have a great family. Everything's going to go well. And then one of the most awkward stories, honestly, one of the most awkward stories in the Bible takes place right here. The wedding day has come. Jacob has worked seven years to earn his beloved Rachel's hand. They've been waiting. Oh, I should note uh, Jacob here. And I'm, I'm being just, this is what the text says. Jacob comes to uh, Laban and is like, Hey, I, um, it's time, buddy. It's time here. I've been waiting long enough. Okay. Now I don't know about you. I I don't, I don't advocate for long engagements. Um, it just kind of strings things out and makes it difficult. And that's what's happening here. Jacob's been waiting and looking and hanging out. And he's like, look, Laban, like, I, I can't wait that much longer. Okay. Like I'm getting antsy here. And so Laban says, sure, let's have the wedding. Let's do it. And they go and they have their great feast. And I want to read these verses. Sorry, Uh, 21, 29, 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go up into her. 
and be with her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. This is the older sister that Jacob does not love. And so it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. Now, we could, we could speculate. I, I think it's probably likely that, for sure, in this culture, they would have worn some serious veils during the wedding and even through the night. Um, it's also very possible that this party was pretty intense and Jacob was a little bit um, drunk. That, the text doesn't say that, but when you read it, you're like, how? How does he not notice? And we're not exactly sure, but something happens. And you know, after that night, it's too late. There's no backing out. And what has happened? Laban has deceived the deceiver. And Jacob realizes that this is not the woman that I was going to marry. Now, as a side note, can you imagine how Leah and Rachel felt? What is Leah in this story? She's just a pawn for her father to try to get, o- get one over on Jacob. You'll see later that God, God hears Leah. But Leah struggles for a long time with not feeling loved. And with this kind of father, how he uh, used her, you can imagine she's not feeling very loving. But Jacob is deceived. And it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this? What have you done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? And notice, why then have you deceived me? Hmm. Isn't that what Isaac said about to Esau? Jacob has come in and deceived me. Yeah, I mean, it was good for Jacob to deceive people when he was seeking God. But well, when he gets deceived, not cool. It's fleshly means, earthly means. And Laban says, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. You know, fulfill her week. Work for the seven years, and then you can have Rachel as well. And Laban kind of just puts off the responsibility. Hey, look, I can't help it, okay? Look, in our country, in our land here, you know what we do? We don't marry the younger daughter first. Too bad. I couldn't help it. And Laban tries to play it off like it's not his fault. And look, I'm just doing tradition here, and you weren't going to listen, obviously, so I had to, I had to do it this way. It sounds so similar in my mind. So this is Jacob. Jacob's like, look, God said it. So like, we got to make it happen. I can't help it. This is just the way it's got to be. And here's Laban saying, hey, Jacob, sorry, it's tradition. Like, I can't help it. This is just the way it's got to be. What is Jacob learning? This is the result of deception, of manipulation, of fleshly means, fleshly actions. Jacob obviously is crushed. Yet because of his love for Rachel, he agrees to work another seven years. What has Laban gotten out of this deal by using his daughters? Seven more years of free work. It's really sad, actually. Laban has turned the tables on Jacob. And just to note, this doesn't mean that Jacob had to wait another seven years to marry Rachel. Basically what happens is he works seven years, he gets deceived for Leah, And then he works maybe a small amount of time just to wait for the wedding. And then he marries Rachel and then he works another seven years. I always thought as a kid that it was like seven years and then he had to work another seven years. The text doesn't seem to indicate that. It's more he got them both and then he kept working to fulfill that thing. What do we see? Jacob is reaping what he has sown. He's learning through the suffering that maybe this is not the best way to go about accomplishing God's will. Manipulation breeds manipulation. Deception breeds deception. Family favoritism breeds family favoritism. Even if you think it's for the right reasons, sin in your life and in your family will only lead to more sin. Say, hey, I got good good reasons for it. It doesn't matter. Jacob did too. Sin destroys whatever it touches. It corrupts and tears down God's good creation. Yet there is still grace from God. I just point out, we don't have time to read the whole story. Look at verse 31 of chapter 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, I mean, you can't, again, it's like hard to blame Jacob. He didn't ask for this, but it's undoubtable, undoubted that he loved Rachel more. Here's Leah. She's been pushed into this marriage against probably, I'm sure against her will. She has no choice. And here she is stuck with this man who wanted to marry her sister anyways and is now unloved. But what does it say? When the Lord saw 
that Leah was unloved. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. God sees. God knows. God's grace is to those who are humbled, to those who are unloved, to those who are, those who are broken, even from other sins. Did Leah do anything wrong? Not really. She didn't really have a choice. She's been used in this story, but God saw her. God loved her. There's a great story in that section where Leah learns to trust and praise the Lord instead of looking to her husband for a blessing, but we don't have time for that. So we're going to keep moving. Promise. I'm going to try to get through this. What is Jacob learning through this? Jacob is learning to seek God's promise by faith and not through the flesh. He is receiving the exact sort of deception that he used against his own family. The next story, Jacob's wives compete for acceptance and affection. Well, you can imagine in this sort of family, do things go well? They do not. We already saw Leah has four children because God blessed her. And Rachel, the loved sister, has zero. And so what does Rachel say? Jacob, give me sons. <laughs> like, and I love Jacob's response in, in, chapter, uh, uh, in uh, chapter 29 or in 30. Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. He said, am I in the place of God who is withheld from the fruit of your womb? And Rachel says, I got an old family tradition, an old standby here. I'm going to pull it right out. I can't have kids. You know what? My sister's having kids and it's causing problems. I can't stomach it. You know what I'm going to do? Hey, Jacob, I have a maid. She can bear children for me. Yeah, we've seen that story before, haven't we? Did it work out the first time? Doesn't work out this time either. Only causes more problems. And Jacob foolishly says, sure. And then Leah says, she's done having children. And Leah says, okay, but now I'm the one who's without children. So here, have my maid. When you read the story of Joseph and you wonder why the brothers didn't like each other, just read the story, okay? They are competing for Jacob's affection. Sounds a lot like Jacob's family. Because again, sin breeds sin. They've been stuck and used as pawns in their father's schemes. And now they're stuck in a family that is dysfunctional and destroyed. Jacob's once again learning that family favoritism doesn't, doesn't work very well. This kind of manipulation doesn't work very well. And the last story in this section, Jacob's wealth increases and he flees from Laban. So he's had his family, he's growing, things are going well for Jacob, actually. And what does he say? This is in chapter 30, verse 25. And it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served and let me go. For you know my service, which I have done for you. And Laban's like, look, I'm not about to let you just walk out of here. I've gotten a lot from you and I still want more free labor. But Jacob pleads and says, look, I don't have any wealth. He, he, he says, please, just here's what, I'll, here's what I'll propose, Laban. Jacob says, you know what? I kind of want my own thing here. I want to grow my own wealth, not just uh, take care of yours. So how about this? How about I go through the flock of sheep and goats, uh, the bank account, and I say, you know what? I'll take the spotted and the speckled ones. And Laban says, you know what? That's a good idea, Jacob. Great idea. And then what does Laban do? He says, hey, sons, his own sons. Go take all the spotted and speckled ones and take them three days away out, away from the flock. Once again, cheating Jacob after agreeing. And there's a story in here. Jacob uh, uses a folk tradition uh, using some branches that he peels bark to put before the sheep uh, so that when they are mating, that the certain characteristics are produced. And uh, I don't, again, running short on time, the, the, but God blesses this. And what happens Soon, despite Laban's manipulations, Jacob's flock and wealth is growing greater and larger than Laban's. God is blessing Jacob despite Laban's manipulations. And what does God tell Jacob in verse chapter 31, verse 3? He says, okay, Jacob, things have gone well. I've been blessing you. Then the Lord appeared to Jacob and says, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. First, Jacob, with his own family, sought it for himself in his own way. 
In this time, he has experienced nothing but deception and deceit and manipulation and suffering. But he's been learning to trust in the Lord. God tells him, go, go, leave. And he leaves. And uh, Laban uh, doesn't like this because Laban doesn't know about it. And so he chases him and looks pretty bad. Laban's going to come and maybe even kill him. We don't know. But God appears to Laban and tells him, don't mess with Jacob. God is watching Jacob's back. They make an agreement and Jacob leaves. And this comes to our last section here. Verse chapter 32. So Jacob went on his way and God, the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Manahanaim. Then Jacob sent messages before him. Remember, he's going back to his parents' place after 20 years. And uh, what's still on his mind? Who is on his mind? Esau. So he sends messengers into the land of Seir, the country of Edom, where Esau is. And he commanded them, saying, speak thus to my lord Esau. I do love Jacob now. Who's he calling lord? <laughs> Esau. Jacob's been humbled a little bit. Thus, your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I've sent to tell you, my lord, that I may find favor in your sight. You ever called someone to let them know you're coming so they're not surprised? That's what happens. Jacob's like, hey, Esau, I'm coming over here. Don't, uh, don't kill me, please. Don't get surprised. And they come back to Jacob. And they say, we came and talked to your brother Esau. And he is also coming to meet you. And, oh yeah, uh, he's got 400 men with him. <laughs> and what do you think Jacob feels about that? So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And, you know, Jacob, like, the, the chickens are coming home to roost here. Jacob's like, hey, I'm coming back. I kind of, things fell apart with Laban. He doesn't like me anymore. I guess I got to go back. God told me to go back to my family. I'm trying to appease Esau. And now Esau's coming to meet me. And it's not a fat, fa happy family tradition. Happy family meeting. J Esau's coming with 400 men. So, okay. I mean, can you imagine if we came to church and it's like, oh yeah, there's a, there's a group of 400 men coming down the road to come meet us. Even just like if we didn't know anything about it, we'd be like, well, that's kind of, Scary. Like, what are they doing here? And here's Esau, who last Jacob heard, Esau promised, I'm going to kill you as soon as dad's gone. Seems like Esau has the means and the motive now. He's just waiting for the opportunity. Jacob is afraid. But remember, what did God promise Jacob? I will bring you back to your father's land safely. So far, everything else has come to pass. Jacob, big family? Yes. Great wealth? Yes. Now it's just the return. And Jacob has learned a thing or two during his time. He sends messengers out to Esau. He tries to cajole him. He tries to appease him. But he also turns to God. Chapter 32, verse 9 through 12. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, remember, he's claiming God's promise, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of the truth that you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two companies. I've become two families, you know, Rachel and Leah. I've become a big group. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. As far as I can tell, uh, we haven't, we've only seen Jacob pray twice. Once when God met him at Bethel, the stairway to heaven, and now, and now. Jacob is learning to look to God, to trust, not his own schemes. His suffering in the wilderness and with Laban has done him some good. And what happens next? The climax of Jacob's story, after trusting in God for deliverance to claiming that promise, God graciously appears. Chapter 32. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Oh, sorry. And he going to, verse 22. That's the beginning of the chapter. 22. And he arose that night and took two of his wives and two of his female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the fort of Jabbok, took them and sent them over the brook. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. 
Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, the man, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I will not go unless you bless me. And the man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, supplanter, deceiver, manipulator. And the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask me about my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. This is where God appears once again. God has appeared to Jacob before and spoken with him, yet this time God appears even more intimately. Not just speaking, but physically to wrestle with Jacob. And it's interesting because uh, in this scene, Jacob settles in for the night, a restless night for sure with such danger on the horizon. You think Jacob was sleeping well with Esau coming with 400 dudes? Probably not. And the author leaves it intentionally vague. You notice a man appears and wrestles with Jacob. And you're like, wait, who's this man? Is this Esau? He already got, Jacob saw the angels of God earlier. Is this like an angel from God? Is he, is he trying to kill him? Is this an assassin? Has Esau found him? Is this someone else? This man seems to mirror, though, the angel of the Lord who appears throughout Old Testament stories. This is God's direct representative. Most likely, I think this is God appearing as a man, even maybe a pre-incarnate Christ, if you want to say that. God's chief messenger. And he wrestles with Jacob. Now, obviously, God could have defeated Jacob, so God's letting, you know, learning, teaching Jacob something here. But Jacob is relentless. He demands a blessing from God. And this is what Jacob needed to learn. It is not wrestling with Esau that brought blessing. It was not wrestling with Laban that brought blessing. It was not earthly men or means that brought fulfillment of God's promise. God's grace must be sought from God himself. Jacob has wrestled with men enough in his life. He's now wrestling with God. The passage shows that God is free to bless whom he pleases. The blessing Jacob so desires is not an automatic bestowal. This is based on grace to Jacob, nor is it a promise Jacob can achieve through his own strength or wit. It is through the transforming grace of God. Certainly, Jacob did not see that wrestling for what it was, a parable of his entire life. Throughout the long narrative, Jacob's life has been characterized as a grasping struggle. What did he do from birth? Holding that heel. Jacob wrestled with his brother and then with his father and his father-in-law and even with his wives. And now with God. But Jacob had turned his wrestling from men to God. He sought God for a blessing. And isn't this true faith? To claim God's promises, one must go to the giver of those promises. How foolish to seek to fulfill God's words by our own efforts. How foolish to seek God's pleasure by flawed, sinful human actions. You think Jacob could, seek, could get God's pleasure by deceiving his brother and father? Only by going to God. God's grace is just that gracious. It is not earned. It is bestowed on the undeserving. It is grasped by faith, which is trust in the Lord, and not by deception or manipulation. And what does God do? He merely touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. Jacob has put all this effort. Can you imagine Jacob? It's like, I've wrestled all night, and then all of a sudden, you're just like, boop, you're done. It's like when you wrestle with your kids, and you kind of give them like a chance. They're on the ground, all of a sudden, you're like, okay, I'm done with this. And you're just like... Throw him over your shoulder. It's like God. It's like, okay, Jacob, I wrestled with you. I let you try. I gave you, I'm teaching you something, but all of a sudden, now I'm done with this. Your hip is gone, out of joint. Jacob has nothing left but to cling to the man, God, and demand a blessing. He's left with nothing but to cling to God. And what does he ask him? What is your name? Jacob. Isn't that accurate? Isn't Jacob the deceiver, the manipulator? But what does God declare? Your name is not Jacob supplanter, the heel grabber, but Israel. Literally, God fights for you. You're God's royalty. Jacob is no longer the source of victory. God is. Jacob doesn't have to fight Esau. God will fight for Jacob. Jacob is God's champion. As Jacob has learned to struggle with God instead of men, God declared that he, God, will struggle with men for Jacob. 
He's no longer the deceiver, but the one for whom God will fight. God's prince, Israel, and God blesses him. It is through faith, relentless faith in God, that Jacob receives this blessing, not through his own efforts, not through his own struggles. And yet God has left Israel, Jacob, with a limp, a disability. Remember, Esau's coming with 400 men. How great is Jacob going to be able to fight now? Isn't that the point? He can't. He must trust in the Lord. Jacob's physical weakness meant spiritual strength. Faith demands a recognition of our own weakness. Jacob had always relied on his own strength, his own wit, his own scheming, but now he's a cripple. He can't rely, so he only can rely on God. A true encounter with God results not in greater strength, but in greater weakness through which God demonstrates his strength. What has God done in Jacob's life besides stripping everything that he could rely on away from him? The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once was asked, what does a person look like who has truly met God? And alluding to this passage, he says, that person walks with a limp. Who is better off? The strong Jacob we see in the beginning, who successfully deceives Esau and Isaac, or the weak, limping Israel, who humbly trusts the Lord? This is the transformation of Jacob. He has been taken down several pegs. While being incredibly blessed, it is only through humility that faith is found. Isn't that what the Bible says? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jacob did not deserve God's grace, but God lavished it on him anyways, and through it transformed him from a man of deceit to a man of faith. So seek God's promise by faith and not through the flesh. And what happens when Esau shows up? You can guess, God fulfills his promise. So Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and there was Esau coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two maidservants and put the maidservants and the children in front, Leah and the children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before him and he bowed himself to the ground seven times. I, I love that Jacob's like, okay, now I'm going to be humble. After all that, you know, I was like, Esau will serve me. Now Jacob's like, okay, Esau, you're in charge. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? And Jacob says, the children whom God has graciously given me. And then Esau says, why do you mean by all this company which I met? These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau says, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob need a scheme to defeat Esau. God had been preparing Esau's heart for a long time for this meeting. God was at work. Jacob simply had to trust. And lastly, following this, God requires commitment and loyalty from Jacob. Some other things happen. Jacob has to leave where he's living. He goes back to Bethel. And in chapter 35, to end the story of Jacob, really, before Joseph starts happening, God tells him, go up to Bethel, where you met God when you fled from Esau. And then Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, Put away, purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God. We kind of skipped over, we didn't have time, but Jacob and his family still had idols they were carrying with them everywhere. And after this, what does Jacob do? He says, I'm going to trust in the Lord only and worship only him. There is true commitment. And what does God say again? Then Jacob, God appeared to Jacob again and blessed him. And God said, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. What do we see in the story? First, true faith comes with a limp. It wrestles with God and not men. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Has God hobbled you? Are you here today feeling that you have nothing? That you feel weak? That's grace, because it means you can trust in the Lord. Don't sorrow. Rejoice for your weakness, because through that, God's strength is shown. Those who still strut in their own strength have not met God face to face. Lean on God in your limb. Let him exalt you. 
Second, true grace from God transforms us from the inside out by removing our idols from the outside in. God began by removing Jacob's idol of self-determination, then the idol of self-success. Then God even took his physical strength and ability to protect his own family. And after all this, when God asked Jacob to let go of the family idols, Jacob was ready to worship only God. It wasn't until then. God graciously prunes the idols from his children's lives, us. This is usually a painful process to which we protest greatly. And although God's hand of discipline feels heavy, it ends in a gracious and gentle embrace of a loving father. What does Jesus say? I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. That it may bore, bear more fruit. And lastly, true blessing comes not from God's, it, true blessing comes by God's grace through faith not of your own works. How do we see this today? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who seeks God's salvation, the way Jacob sought God's blessing, will not receive it. It is only those who humble themselves and trust in God wholly, in faith, that receive salvation. Are you working for God's favor today? Are you depending on your own efforts to achieve God's blessings? Are you like Jacob in this story? Has that fleshly effort brought peace and joy and hope? Has it? Or has it only brought heartache and further sin and destruction? Stop striving and trust in God's grace alone. So who are we today? Hopefully we're not Esau. I really hope none of us are Esau. But are we Jacob, the self-trusting deceiver who's working for God's blessing? Are we Jacob learning through suffering? Has God started to strip everything away from you? Or are you Israel, the man, of, the man or woman of faith? Do you have a limp? Have you learned to trust the Lord like Jacob did? That is the transforming grace. God, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank